No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Yes, it is another edition of BOA Audio Season 8 coming at you live here at noon on Tuesday, September 9th. Very early for me, but I've uh, already swilled down three large cups of coffee, and I have many more sitting here in front of me. So it's going to be a a fun and enlightening conversation as you hear me slowly wake up talking to our guest. Very excited about this conversation our guest, as I say in the uh, little preview there, he's an icon of cryptozoology. He's the maestro of the Twilight language, and he is a longtime friend of this program and me personally. I consider him a really, really good friend. had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with him up at the International Cryptozoology Museum. The first week it opened, uh, way, way, way back in the day. I still have the opening opening day or opening week t-shirt here uh, at BOA HQ. As I said, he is a really good friend of the show and an ardent baseball fan as well and a Red Sox fan, so you know that's obviously why we're obviously such good friends. <laughs> but he is the author of a myriad of books, uh, countless I would say, but I have a feeling he has the count and he'll tell us in a moment. Uh, as I say, he's an icon in the world of cryptozoology. We like to say about Stan Friedman, uh, if they ever build a UFO Hall of Fame, he's going to need his own wing. With Lauren Coleman, he's the man who created, curates, and directs the International Cryptozoology Museum. So that's how much of a titan he is in this field. And uh, I'm really thrilled to have him back on the show. It's been far too long, and it's going to be really a fun conversation. Lauren Coleman, welcome back to BOA Audio, my friend. Thank you, Tim. I think after your introduction and that bumper music, it's, uh, we can just turn the program off, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully the audience doesn't feel that way. But <laughs> no, no, no. Thank you. Thank you for your welcome, and it's really good to be back here for more reasons than one, and I really appreciate you inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's long overdue, and as I said, uh, there's so much to talk about. What I like is uh, we don't overexpose you. We don't have you on five, six times a year. That way we have nothing left to talk about. We've got a lot to talk about here because it's been a couple years since we chatted. First, just you know, give me the general update. How are things going at the International Cryptozoology Museum? Uh, folks, of course, can find out more about that at CryptozoologyMuseum.com. And how are you doing? I know you had a little health scare uh, earlier in the year, but it sounds like you're back up on your feet and up and running again. Right. Well, uh, with regard to the museum, we're doing really well. We actually uh, became a nonprofit and in 2011. And then, of course, what you have to do is you have to file all the right papers and wait for the government to get back to you about your 501c3. Well, that letter actually came in June of this year, June of 2000, 
14. So three years we weren't able to fundraise because we were waiting on the letter. But now we've got it, and we're getting, you know, between 6,000 and 10,000 people to visit a year and uh, just steaming right along and having lots of fun. So uh, it's, a, it's a really great place for people to visit and also to uh, see me and talk to me and, you know, some old friends and new friends. So it's, it's lots of fun. What unfortunately happened over the winter was that I started having some some distressful pain. For about two years, I've had an infection that they actually could not tie down the source of. And it turns out apparently uh, my bladder, my appendix, and my colon had all fused together. Jesus. And my, my system was dumping E. coli into different parts of my body. Oh my and God. they hadn't really caught up with it. So I had uh, three hospitalizations, a couple major surgeries, but I'm actually feeling much better than I have in about five years. Uh, and, of course, hospitals are the best fat farm. I lost 50 pounds, so I'm feeling extremely uh, healthy with regard to my weight and a lot more fit and, and everything. And, uh, you know, because of uh, post-operative wound recovery, I'm a little bit slower on picking up uh, – 50-pound bags and stuff like that. But other than that, uh, I'm slowly coming back to the museum more, doing more things. I just got back from Dragon Con, which uh, I'd never experienced that before. And uh, that, you know, I had a couple of talks on Bigfoot in films and also a talk on Slenderman and Phantom Clowns. But 63,000 people in one location. It was incredible. I mean, that's the whole population of Portland, Maine. So I went down and was involved in a conference where there was as many people in one six hotel area as there is in all of the town of uh, Portland. So it was quite quite an experience. I'd never had that before. Uh, I didn't realize that Comic Cons and Dragon Cons were getting so big, but they're monstrous. Yeah, they're pretty huge. They're 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 a circus in them to themselves. I, I actually haven't been to one yet because I'm almost terrified at this point because they've gotten so big. But I'd like <laughs> to check one out. It's cool that they that uh, you know because the Comic Con in San Diego that's like all about movies and stuff. It's this Dragon Con sounds like it's a little more open to a whole bunch of different stuff. If they got you down there talking and stuff like that. Yeah, they have a paranormal track. They have a skeptics track. They have films, Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who. I mean, it's oh, fantasy movies. Uh, it's everything that you can imagine. Of course, an incredible amount of people in cosplay. Mm. Uh, so there's all kinds of costumes with lots of skin and lots of helmets and different things like that. So it was quite intriguing. Interesting, interesting. Now, uh, it's interesting, too, that we've got you here today on September 9th because uh, you recently posted on the Twilight Language blog this September 9 to 11 alert, Decapitations, Dawns, Masked Men, and Tridents. So let's just dig into this because this is kind of really of the moment. Uh, if you want to catch people up a little bit on sort of how this how this all comes together, what the Twilight language is, feel free to sort of give them a little thumbnail so they're up to speed. But then let's really get into this uh, this 9/11 window that we're in right now and and how it seems like uh, you know something maybe afoot. Right. Well, the Twilight language is a way to really decode and demystify what's in front of us all the time. A lot of people, of course, travel down their roads, travel around, work with dates and anniversaries, and don't really think about it. And what the Twilight language does, and, and people like my, myself that write about it, 
what we're really trying to do is perceive what's going on on a hidden level hmm. of understanding. And I think, you know, words like coincidence, synchronicity, all kinds of words like that, and synchromysticism, uh, all have been thrown out there. Even Fortiana really involved a lot of this, but it's uh, it's just a way to try to interpret what's going on around us in a way that a lot of people are just kind of in a fog. They go to their work, they go to their job, they get in their car, they turn on the radio, they watch sports, you know, they have their beer at night, and they really aren't conscious about how they're really involved in a massive societal language that is just passing them by. Hmm. So with regard to um, what I started noticing, well, of course, uh, and I've been written up quite a bit about how I um, perceived that on uh, July 21st, 2012, we were going to have some big event happen uh, related to the Dark Knight Rises. And it just so happens that's the night when uh, James Holmes went into the theater and shot it up uh, at the preview, I mean, the um, premiere of The Dark Knight Rises in Aurora, Mm -hmm. Colorado. So if you look at the words Aurora, Colorado, that really can be translated as Red Dawn. Um, Both of those words can break down to Red Dawn. And I started noticing there were a lot of Red Dawns, a lot of Auroras, a lot of Holmes, those kinds of things popped up. Well, what I started noticing and a lot of other people started noticing, not a lot of other people, but, you know, a handful of people that are the, the insight, uh, inside people in this field, hmm. about 12 months ago and then very specifically six months ago, tridents. Tridents started popping up everywhere. Tridents uh, in certain incidents and in certain names. Uh, and if you look at it, the symbol of the country of Ukraine is a trident. If you look at the Malaysian airlines on the back of their uh, tail, there's a symbolic trident. And so you started getting a lot of combinations where you saw tridents popping up. And, of course, uh, with regard to the United States, there's different cities like Norfolk, Virginia, or um, the War College at Newport, uh, Rhode Island, all have tridents as their symbols. So we started noticing that this kind of subliminal um, language was really being thrown our way about tridents. So um, I also am very attuned to the anniversaries that come up and really wanted to alert people to the fact that um, on uh, September 9th, September 10th, and September 11th, we've got a lot of anniversaries going on, a lot of things that are connected to uh, the past, but also maybe a preview of the future. Yes. Uh, Obviously, because of 9-11, the United States government and a lot of countries, as well as law enforcement people, are attuned to the fact that they should be alert to any acts of terrorism, any acts of uh, mentally unbalanced people, Uh, trying to get into violence on 9-11. Well, what I started also noticing is we have the supermoon occurring right now on 9-9. And uh, I think that uh, what I was talking about in my blog was really not letting our guard down just because everybody's looking at 9-11, but looking at the logical extension of that, that we should watch out for something happening 
on 9, 9, 9, 10, and 9, 11. Right. And everybody's looking at Syria, Iraq, um, you know, Israel, uh, Ukraine, those kinds of countries for something big to happen. But I uh, really warn against ignoring the soft targets that may be, you know, like the naval base uh, someplace because of the tridents are kind of showing us something. So I just put that out there and um, actually – I also had predicted something big was going to happen on August 24th uh, related to tridents. And as it turned out, that was the day that we had the Napa, Napa, California earthquake. Hmm. And uh, the epicenter turned out to be Poseidon's Vineyard, which, of course, <laughs> is all about tridents. Yeah. So, so, you know, sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. I, uh, the other thing that I wanted, uh, did mention in that, posting is it's not that I want bad things to happen. I'm actually saying a lot of these things out loud so that uh, people that are in law enforcement, people that have some way to prevent these things or to watch out can actually be more alert and therefore cause them not to happen. So I would be very, very happy if we get through these three days and absolutely nothing major, uh, no major violent incidents occur, but... uh, you know, we could have good old um, ISIS or some of the other folks over there do another beheading to take advantage of uh, the 9-11 anniversaries. And so, right. you know, that, those things do happen. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a difficult sort of topic to tackle because it's really – it relies a lot on retrospective, and it's really hard to sort of gauge where it goes predictively. You know, it's, you can't really – I'm still amazed by the whole Dark Knight uh, one that you put together. So it's like you just really don't know where where this can where this can lead. Do you think in the future there'll be it'll, it'll get more refined this sort of study of this language because you know it seems to be getting more and more popular. I, I think so, and I think that um, that there we already know the FBI has behavioral programmers, uh, people that are looking into trying to predict behaviors based upon. Uh, the, the warning signs and the, you know, the things, the, the risk factors and all of those. And so I think it's already happening in the deeper, dark uh, parts of the government. It's just a matter of there's got to be more formalization of the training. There's got to be more uh, actual reinforcement of folks like myself saying, you know, you guys aren't crazy for looking at this. Uh, and there is actual ways to predict behavior, human behavior. Uh, I came out of at this first, of course, in suicide prevention, mm. because in suicide prevention, there's certain risk factors or certain warning signs that you can look for, and if you see those coming along, then you should be able to predict somebody being at risk for suicide. Well, then I, I merged that with the whole notion that suicide is homicide turned inward, so suicide can also be turned outward in homicide, and that's why you got uh, school shootings, because those are nothing really more than murder-suicide situations, where most of these people are trying to shoot up a school, shoot up a college, a library, whatever, a sporting event, and then they're trying to get themselves either killed by suicide by cop or turning the gun on themselves. And so there, there's a lot of overlap, and then if you extend that even further and see that acts of terrorism, even if they're political, really are nothing more than a massive way to do a, a 
a murder-suicide uh, on a societal level. Mm. And, and if you look at 9-11, those individuals that were involved in bringing death and destruction to the Twin Towers, none of those people lived. They all committed suicide. So um, it certainly has a lot of the same uh, warning signs are there and some of the same indicators. It's just a matter of uh, extending it and predicting it. And, and so I, I think that, uh, you know, even we're, we're looking at some things going on with Robin Williams. And then we had uh, another woman named, uh, a woman named Simone Battle, who was an X-Factor singer, and she um, died by suicide last Friday. And she did that uh, by hanging herself in the closet. So you have the copycat effect, as I called it in my book, the copycat effect, uh, coming into play too. Mm. So you have the uh, the copycat effect, you have the warning signs, you have the twilight language, and they all can kind of mix up in times like this, like uh, 9-9 to 9-11. Yeah. Now, a lot of conspiratorial-minded folks, they look at these things, I'm thinking like specifically of like the uh, a lot of the, the coincidences and, or whatever you want to call it, a lot of the twilight language that, that surrounded the Dark Knight thing. Remember how they had the map that had Sandy Hook on it? A lot of people look at these things, not a lot of people, but people in the conspiracy community look at this, and they immediately are like, oh, it's the Illuminati putting this stuff out there. And But I, I personally, I just find that hard to believe. Have you given much thought to sort of like what's behind this twilight language? Is it some kind of like mystical ethereal element we haven't quite been able to figure out yet, or do you think there's some deliberation behind it? Well, I know I know what you're talking about. You know, have the Masons done it? Is right. there a false flag for the United States government doing I I tend to look at it more in terms of how would the ant understand what the human's doing? You know, you're in a garden, and you're digging up the ground, and here's a little ant, and they're thinking, what is this? human doing you know are they doing this because i'm here so i think humans there's something else going on that's way beyond us that's way beyond our understanding and one of the things that i'm very able to say is that i'm perceiving some patterns i'm perceiving things that i'm beginning to predict that does not necessarily mean i understand why this is happening hmm. or who's doing it or if it's you know, a greater being or a lesser being or the devil or God or whatever uh, label you want to give to this. So I always come back to the place of saying I feel extremely comfortable saying I don't know. What I do know is such A is happening and B is happening and that's causing B. But I don't have any idea who the master planner behind this is right now. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think it's John Keel from his grave. I don't think it's Obama from the White House, but I certainly don't know that it's not somebody else, some other global entity that is just having fun with all of us. Right, right, exactly. Well, I, I respect your take on it better than than you know some of you get the other takes on it. You know, at least I, I appreciate that you can say I don't know, but here's here's what we do know, rather than saying I know and here's what here's the, here's this carefully selected evidence to back up what I say I know. So that's a Yeah, there are there are podcasts for people that want to go listen to them and there are some people on those programs that have all the answers right and they can feel very comfortable in knowing everything. Of course <laughs> whenever whatever tomorrow it happens to be different than what they said then they ignore that. Yeah. Now just to I guess to stay sort of on that whole conspiracy realm and, and that connecting it to all this 
What, what was what's your reaction to this this Sandy Hook truther thing that's come out since the Sandy Hook shooting? It's really unfortunate. I I, I, I kind of see, you know, I can see where the paranoia comes from, but I, I really uh, have a hard time connecting with with that line of thought that this was some grand conspiracy and, and all that stuff. I do too. I think that if we look at it uh, from even a distance, let alone close up, this was a, a person that was certainly unbalanced. Um, you know, he shot and killed his mother before he went to the school. So there was some stuff that was very close to home with him. Uh, sure, you're going to get a lot of uh, repeats and copycats and similarities to other things that are going on. And uh, I, I, I think that the, if you look at it and look at the maps from the Batman movies and Dark Knight movies and see Sandy Hook and that, uh, that's an amazing coincidence, uh, but it does not necessarily mean it's a government conspiracy or that uh, somebody's trying to, you know, forecast and uh, predetermine things by putting it in movies. I, I just, uh, I don't think that that's happening. Um, what what does, you know, if, you can, if we completely get out of our consciousness mm-hmm. and, and go to a whole different place, and almost become science fiction about it, maybe, uh, you know, at some level you can almost begin to fantasize that there's ways that they have found in the future to predict, I mean, to uh, come back and try to put things right in the way of us all so that we'll say, wait, something's going to happen here or, Hmm. Something's going to, you know, and that I think is as crazy to think and believe as it is to think that the U.S. government is shooting up little kids in Sandy Hook uh, Elementary School. Right. So I, I think that if you look at all of these different theories, they absolutely none of them hold any water. They're all just different people's fantasies, uh, and we, as long as we can live with them as fantasies, then then certainly. Uh, you know, we can entertain any of them. But there's absolutely no evidence for time travel, government conspiracies, uh, aliens, or uh, the Masons being involved in any of these grand things that are happening. Right, exactly. If anything, the government just takes advantage of them happening. That's, you know. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's been well known that, uh, you know, everything from uh, during World War II, there was all kinds of psychops. Psychops are always going to be take advantage of cryptozoology or strange reports or UFOs, and, and certainly they're going to take advantage of violent situations too. Uh, you know, whether or not they're going to try to overcome an enemy or try to free prisoners and use different kinds of uh, false flags or cloudy disinformation, it seems to be for somebody's idea of the greater good. Mm. Now you 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 sort of have a obviously you have a critical eye on news when it comes out because you're you're well trained in all this. What kind of advice I guess do you give to the average person listening right now? You know when they're watching the news, what sort of stuff should they look for if they're trying to look for elements of the twilight language? Uh, you know, uh, resting underneath the news. Well, it's interesting. I taught a course at uh, University of Southern Maine for 13 years on documentary film, and we also would look at uh, the news. And so many of my students came back to me after they were through years later and 
you know, I would meet them at a restaurant or at a bookstore or something. We'd say, you know, I never look at the news the same way I after I took your course. And I think one of the things that we did in that course uh, and that I really talked quite a bit about is to take a mediated reading. In other words, to look at the news and look at it extremely critical, not so much skeptical, but what angle are they talking about with that story? Are they even setting a little bit higher than the person they're interviewing? Are they using dark shading with the person they're interviewing to put them in a a different light? Uh, Are they trying to really slant the news without acting like they are? Because all news is propaganda. All news is trying to put across a certain point of view that either the news establishment, the sponsors, or the government at the time wants people to believe in or think about. So uh, the whole notion that, uh, I mean, even 9-11, if you look at the beginning of the story of 9-11, it was about a little plane hitting a big building. And they could not even really consider that it was a commercial airliner. So uh, the way that the news is brought to you, uh, as opposed to saying, well, we think it was an alien aircraft landed on the top here, they always try to come at you with the most mundane explanation, one that most people will buy. And, of course, the other thing is to really look at the news as if it bleeds, it leads. Every part of news is about assassinations, buildings burning, uh, airplane crashes, murders. Uh, It's all about disasters. It's all about violence, even the fear of violence. And so you've got to understand that most of us live a day-to-day existence in which nothing happens. It's really pretty boring. You know, we get up, we have our coffee or tea, eat our breakfast, go to work, come home at night, go to sleep. Nothing happens. So the whole notion of news nowadays is to try to stimulate, is to try to sensationalize, is to try to make people more interested in the next hour than the previous hour. Yeah. So, uh, And that's why, for instance, school shootings started becoming spread around the country, not because of one school shooter was talking to another, but because the media was actually spreading it, manufacturing it, and making it a copycat phenomenon that other violent, vulnerable people would pick up on. Mm. Uh, so it seems. And, that, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it just seems uh, it seems people are kind of starting to realize that a little bit because I noticed, like uh, in the last few of these high-profile shootings. They were really stressing, you know, let's not glamorize this guy who did this, you know, talk about the victims, don't talk about the the, the perpetrator, especially that, that, that guy that shot up a bunch of people uh, out in California and had his old manifesto, and that, that was a whole other insane uh, story. Right. I mean, it, it seems like it works for a while, and certainly in Canada versus the United States, In Canada, when there's a mass shooting, they don't do wall-to-wall coverage for two days. Hmm. In the United States, they still do. Uh, But you see things like when Robin Williams uh, died by suicide, a news conference in which the graphic details of how he killed himself was repeated for days and days. 
and that actually has led to other suicides. Uh, apparently, the hotlines across the country reported the highest number of uh, potential attempted suicides and suicide calls that they've ever had after the Robin Williams incident. And so uh, for all of the trying to be quieter about it, trying to not talk about suicide or these kinds of suicides and school shootings, all they have to do is have one celebrity and then everybody goes wild and they forget all of their guidelines. Yeah, yeah. I can attest to that Robin Williams, uh, that, that the, I guess you could say the uh, the uptick because of that, because someone I know, her son committed suicide like five days after Robin Williams uh, died. And I was going to ask you about that. that. I was going to ask you if, if you thought that uh, that there was some kind of, I wouldn't say, co- I, guess, I don't know, copycat effect or just, like I said, uptick in all that. But it sounds like... Oh, yeah, definitely a copycat effect. Because what happens, of course, is that if they would have had uh, done this much publicity and this much interest in somebody that had uh, tried to kill themselves and then survived, you would have had more people thinking, oh, I can go to counseling, I could go to my priest, I can go to you know, my friend, I could even get, jump on Facebook and talk to my quote-unquote friends on Facebook and get myself saved. Instead... You had a person that all of a sudden out of the blue, he's depressed, he kills himself. Oh, okay, I'm in pain too because of my depression or my fears or my, you know, uh, owing money, whatever it is. And then the people decide that the alternative they want to take is to die by suicide. Hmm. And so you're going to have vulnerable kids, adults, especially males, who will identify with the funny, class clown kind of Robin Williams character and knowing that being funny can't even save you, so uh, I'm going to kill myself. And so I'm sorry, very, very sorry to hear about your friend's uh, son or or Mm. kid that happened. I'm not at all surprised because, uh, you know, this recent singer who died by hanging in her closet was an exact copy of Robin Williams. Yeah. And there's probably been more of them that we thankfully haven't heard about, but we, what we have heard about is that the suicide attempts are up, the suicide calls are up, so that means the suicides are probably actually up to, and we'll see in a few months, those statistics come in. Yeah, yeah. It's troubling. It really is troubling. Uh, you just don't... No, you just worry about the uh, the population as we feed them this information. How to how to uh, how to help them? You know how to. Right. It didn't seem. I mean, there was a lot of. It seemed like the, hey, if you're feeling like this, get help stuff was always sort of like an afterthought in the Robin Williams coverage. She was always sort of like at the end of you know the hour long tribute at the very end on a graphic. It's like if you feel depressed, call call and get help. It's like that that should have maybe led some of this coverage. Right. Right. Or, or been you know. The beginning, middle, and end, hmm. but but it does. It's better than nothing. I must say that because the, the headlines and the news stories in the 50s, 60s, and 70s did not even mention that there was a way to get help or somebody to talk to. So at least they're making some progress. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Now tell me about this Zoe Duchanel article you posted because I guess we'll take it into a lighter direction because I thought that was pretty. Uh, it was pretty entertaining. Uh, I, I, I love that you. Have your finger on the pulse of pop culture always as well. So uh, tell me tell me about how Zooey Duchanel uh, fits into the Twilight language. Right. Well, well, 
you know, you've got these people out there, uh, mostly young males, who are in just synchromysticism, and they're looking for different uh, hidden language and twilight language and movies and popular events. And Zoe is always the one that keeps coming up. She's just uh, she's just very popular. And since I had my own uh, coincidences with her father, I thought I'd throw that in there. But uh, certainly on the Emmy Awards, there she was in the middle of the whole thing, giving uh, you know giving an award. And then I noticed uh, there weren't that many people that they did in the memorial tributes. But one of the people that they did have in there was the director of Tin Man. And uh, what, his name is Sergis, I think. And um, he actually, you have the, you know, last year Alan Landis died of In Search Of. And so he, it was a very mystical sort of year. And then Zoe keeps showing up in these different clips and different things. And uh, she's in The Wizard of Oz and, and so to lead off with the, the blog that you mentioned about 9-11, I mentioned that uh, this very mysterious mask brigade, uh, the mask, masked men brigade seems to be behind some of this terrorism. Well, coming out of the Zoe stuff, the Tin Man and the Wizard of Oz is always kind of a very strange thing that we have to look for as far as the Twilight language. And as I'm writing all of this up, I'm getting reports from Ohio of a masked man that has shown up doing different burglaries, and it's on Dorothy Lane. <laughs> you know, there we are with Oz again. So I haven't even mentioned that in any of the blogs yet, but I, it's sort of like if you start with Zoe, you end with Zoe, and it's always in the Wizard of Oz in some way. Hmm. So uh, you know, it's just a very strange, uh, if she's involved in it, it's going to be significant. You know what story is kind of creeping me out? I, I would suggest keeping an eye on. Uh, I feel like it's one of these things. It's like shark attacks kind of story, but uh, it's even more creepy. It's these these crazy people, clearly, who who kidnap uh, usually young women and keep them keep them captive. There was a new one that came out like yesterday. Uh, well, oh, and that guy in Cleveland. It's like Jesus. That's that's the kind of thing we don't want copycat stuff going on. So it's just really unsettling sort of new it's not really a new crime necessarily but it's just unsettling seems to be happening with greater frequency that uh these people are being found uh doing this sort of stuff right right that's uh i i did not even get a chance yet to read about the story about the woman yesterday but she was kept for two months do you remember do you know what city it was in uh let me see i got it here on my cnn uh well because right at the same time i saw that somebody sent me the trailer to this new movie called Tusk. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's Kevin Smith, um, you know, and it's where a man gets kidnapped and he's held captive for a long time and the person slowly starts cutting off different parts of his body oh, God. To, make him, to make him into a walrus. Oh, geez. And, and so talk about a movie possibly having a horrible intersection with, these kidnappings of women. Yeah. Uh, uh, I just hate to see movies like that come out. I, you know, some horror movies are just beyond the pale to me, and I don't know why somebody would make a movie like that. Yeah, this took place in uh, Evansville, Indiana. Oh, Evansville, Indiana, yeah. Yeah. Known for a basketball team previously. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure there's all kinds of uh, 
synchronistic sort of names involved. Yeah, I'll have so, to you know, look like into that. that. Yeah, it's a creepy creepy sort of trend that I've noticed that uh, I hope that we don't see more of, but I'm afraid we will. But I guess if we if you hear more about it, that just means these people are getting caught. So if you, right. if you don't hear about it, they're, they're still getting away with it, which is even uh, more unsettling. Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm, fortunately, I think that what we also, of course, are seeing is a, a real uptick in the beheadings. As um, you know, we had the two, the, you know, the two ones from ISIS, and then right after that, there were two different men that had put uh, cables around their neck, attached it to their car, and beheaded themselves. Uh, and that happened within. I wrote that up too, and that happened within two days of uh, other beheadings. And then, uh, unfortunately, what happened uh, last Thursday. Uh, near a church in Chicago, um, a piece of metal came off from further up the church, fell down, beheaded a uh, gargoyle head. That head fell to the ground and hit a woman on her head and killed her, uh, a mother of two. Uh, so that was a bizarre beheading coincidence that happened uh, recently. And so the whole beheading things is something that I think once it's in the the ether, so to speak, hmm. it seems to play itself out. We had that happen uh, in 2002 through 2004 with uh, Daniel Pearl and uh, Berg. Uh, the beheadings over there uh, in the Mideast were also followed by beheadings over in the United States and North America. And so I see that sort of rubber band effect happen whenever there's beheadings in the news, and then we get them over here, too. Yeah. Do you think that the... Do you think... I hate to say peaked, but do you think we're sort of on a downswing now on these shooting incidents? Or is this sort of the one of those... Is this just kind of this terrible thing that just is lurking and it could, it could pop up any minute? Because it seems like, you know, the, the the James Holmes one, the Dark Knight one, that was kind of like it put everyone on edge, and then it, it sort of crested with this Sandy Hook thing. Uh, I know there have been other events since then, but it seems like, as far as the media goes, that that you know they they seem like they're burned out on this almost. Well, well, what happens, and this is I, I've written quite a bit about this, is that something like uh, Aurora, Colorado, occurs mm-hmm. uh, a mass shooting in which there's a lot of media of interest, uh, a lot of sensationalizing of it. There was lots of copycats uh, after uh, the Aurora. Colorado one of people uh, dressing up as the Joker or doing shootings and different things like that. And then what occurs, it goes in the usual trend of in the fall and then having a quiet winter and then coming back in the spring. And then you have schools out. Uh, So in the summer in the Northern Hemisphere, there's not opportunity really for school shootings. There's some mall shootings and things like that. But but what happened with in December for Sandy Hook is when there's an incident in which people mostly don't talk about the shooter and don't talk about the shooting, they talk about the victims. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of regret. There's a lot of mourning. Uh, and whenever those those emotions are kicked up by the media, the ones in which there's lots of victims and lots of crying, and lots of feeling horrible, there's not a lot of shootings after those. So we're in that period right now after Sandy Hook. But Sandy Hook was 2012, of course. 
Yeah. And we're in that period where there is quite a bit of um, of still looking at school shootings as being despicable acts. Now, what I did predict in my blog, I predicted uh, Sandy Hook within uh, six days of it. And I did warn, though, that after Sandy Hook, the next danger zone would be April 14th through April 20th. And what happened on April 15th? Do you remember? The Boston 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 Marathon bombing. So it went to a different area. It went from school shootings to terrorism on a a very urban level in America, which is very unusual, of course. Happens all the time in Iraq, happens in Tel Aviv, you know, different places in the Mideast, so much so that we don't hardly even hear that news. Americans love to hear about Americans. And here, uh, those two Chechen individuals were able to really get at the heart of America by doing the Boston Marathon. So I think that's April, and now we're coming into a time in which we have to look is the next thing that we're going to hear about terrorism versus school shootings because it has that kind of uh, bouncing on each end of a, a rubber band or a ping-pong ball yeah. with regard to this uh, phenomena. And so I don't think we're going to hear about school shootings for a while, although it's far enough away from 212 that this winter could be dangerous. We could have an anniversary effect in December. Uh, and then next spring, I mean, I think if we get through this this September, September could be very strange. And, you know, everybody's predicting World War III and Ukraine because uh, the the exercise, the military exercise that the U.S. government is going to be involved uh, with at the end of the month is called Rapid Trident. Oh, boy. So, And that's an exercise that's happening in, in uh, Ukraine. So who knows what's going to happen out of that. And as people pointed out, it was 100 years ago during this time, 100 years ago, in which World War I started with a simple assassination. Mm. So sometimes these simple acts of violence turn into global wars, and we really, at the time they happen, we really can't see how, um, how virus spreads, how the violence and war virus really Spreads. Of course, everybody likes to use the word meme nowadays, but it can be that very small act that really has a ripple effect throughout the world. And so uh, it could be, you know, a lot of this business about between Russia and Ukraine has been scaring a lot of people. And so the United States has decided, nevertheless, to go ahead and do their their military uh, procedures and and practices at the end of the month in rapid trident. So we'll see where that leads. That's scary. That's, wow, I didn't know about the uh, rapid trident angle yeah. of all that. Jeez. Yeah. You make oh, see that that again. That makes you wonder like what's really behind all this. It's it's like a cosmic cosmic joke or something. It's scary. Yeah, yeah. It's really strange. Yeah. Um, do we know anything more about James Holmes? Is there is there does anything sort of interesting emerge from this trial, or do you think it's just going to be kind of a you know, they're going to lock him up for mental incompetence and, and nothing really... Uh... Well, he's a very he's a very bright man. I don't. I think that, uh, obviously, he's got a very good attorney who's going to use the mental incompetence, but I don't know if you've already noticed, he's, he's now converted to Muslim, uh, to Islam. 
I think I saw he had a beard now or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's he's um, a Muslim now, and so he's going to go on that different route. I think the the, the strange thing that uh, I started noticing with the 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 Batman, Dark Knight, Joker, really started merging with what we began seeing about Slenderman. Hmm. And Slenderman, uh, those two people, the Millers. You know that movie that came out about, you know, the Millers, and it was all jokey and funny? Yeah. Well, well, the Millers turned out to be those people that uh, shot the two police officers in the pizza place and then went into the Walmart and killed people. Um, They turned out to be cosplay individuals that dressed up as Slender Man, but also as as the Joker and the Joker's uh, harlequin lover. Oh, boy. And so Slender Man is... Uh, the kind of the new Joker, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of looking at some of these mass murderers, uh, is the Slender Man. And if we start looking at some of the incidents, Slender Man, which is a totally fictional character uh, on Creepy Pasta, was came about to the consciousness of most people in terms of violence and, and Twilight language because um, because these two girls tried to stab. That other twelve-year-old in Wisconsin, yeah, and the, and then uh, Slender Man was going to welcome them into their castle. <laughs> well, well, it just happened what a week ago that uh, a fourteen-year-old girl set her family's house on fire because, and she wrote about Slender Man all the time, and she decided to go to the park to sleep in a restroom, and uh, so Slender Man's there in the background of some of these violent incidents, and we have to. And why are these people, mostly girls between the ages of 12 and 14? Uh, you're not hearing that many boys involved with Slender Man. So, uh, well, what do you know. make of it? Well, I mean, what, that, this is so bizarre because, I mean, is it, as you said, it's a completely fictional character. So why, you know, we it's, don't see this kind of thing with, with, with fictional characters like, uh, you know, Batman or Superman or, the jo- I guess, the Joker, yeah, but, but you know what I mean. Right. Right. We don't see that much come into the reality, but I think we're beginning to see the beginnings of something here with Slender Man becoming more real. I mean, uh, uh, Slender Man doesn't exist, Slender Man, but most of the illustrations, if you'll notice, are Slender Man interacting with young girls, uh, pubescent girls out in the woods. And why is it that uh, sort of the dark side as opposed to these girls being afraid of Slender Man, they're doing different violent acts to get closer to Slender Man. Uh, so, and actually, my wife just wrote uh, one of the articles in Fortean Times on Slender Man. She was the author of one of those and looked at how Slender Man has really gone back into history. And you know, if you look at the movie Metropolis, uh, the Thin Man in that movie was actually a Slender Man. Yeah, I heard that argument that Slender Man is, although it, it was created, uh, you know, in the last 10 years on that creepypasta website, but there is sort of like the the underpinnings of the Slender Man character throughout history or something like that. Right, right. And even in, the, I guess, Harry Potter, uh, what's the, oh, Beaumont? Dumb, something like that, yeah, I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not into the movies, so. Yeah, I mean, Th- Those movies, but my son certainly kept me up to date on how everybody was interested in them. But, yeah, I think that, that merging, even people have talked about John Keel's Grinning Man and Men in Black 
you know, merging in and out with Slenderman. So it's, I think we need to watch it because it's really bringing young girls into violence. Hmm. Uh, almost 100% of the school shooters had always before been males, uh, usually Caucasian males using guns uh, and uh, going to school and shooting up people. Well, now you're seeing girls uh, doing some of it too. And, yeah. uh, that's a real danger, danger sign that girls, you know, I'm all for equality and everything, but uh, I don't like my my violent people coming after me, male or female. And I yeah. certainly don't like uh, hearing about young girls getting into violence more and more because of Slender Man. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Have you looked into these, uh, that's this string of murders called the smiley face murders, uh, sort of like mysterious deaths of college-aged, uh, mostly young men that end up, they're sort of moving away from the smiley face aspect of it, but it's sort of this like recurring thing where young men end up uh, found in bodies of water, like as if they stumbled into the water, but under mysterious circumstances. Oh yeah, yeah. I've been looking into that, and hearing about it. It's uh, kind of routine for them to have left a party or left a bar, uh, and then they disappear. And smiley faces have been found across mostly the Midwest, right, and upper Midwest. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think if you, wasn't it either Dexter or True Detective, both had sort of underlying motifs of that, too. Mm. Well, Dexter uh, Dexter certainly had the, one of the episodes was about somebody leaving smiley faces. And and in the True Detective that was on, the, you know, HBO, you had uh, that merging then with the other one that I warned about, Dragon Con, when I talked about Phantom Clowns and Slenderman, the other uh, murders that are going on in the United States that are kind of under the, a lot of people's radar are what I call the uh, Peter Pan murders, the Peter Pan and the Hook. Where, what is uh, this? Well, uh, this is, uh, it seems like there's a group of men, uh, underground cult of men, that are really tied into the Peter Pan cult. And they actually... Um, they kidnap young boys usually, or actually young people, and they show up hanged on library or school cloakrooms. Oh, my God. Uh, from hooks. And a lot of them are being blamed on the kids themselves uh, dying by suicide. But if you look a little bit deeper, uh, sometimes it's quite obvious that they're not suicides, they're murders. Well, in the True Detective uh, series that was on HBO, they talked about this whole underground cult of pedophiles that are kidnapping kids, abusing them, and then killing them, and uh, how people are showing up like that. And very much for me merged with what I, I've seen for several years as this hook or Peter Pan cult. And so uh, when... Uh, Robin Williams died. He obviously was in the Hook movie, and he played Peter Pan, and uh, it really stirred up a lot of people's feelings about that. And, uh, and it once again, was somebody hanging from a belt, uh, you know, from the closet, and it very much tuned, kind of aligned itself with a lot of the Hook murders that are going on in the country. Jeez, I'd never even heard of this. This is that's unsettling. My goodness. Yeah. It's very unsettling, and it's it's very unsettling because I've talked to quite a few people that investigate it, and it's almost as if if they get too close to it, 
they're scared for themselves because they they know that some of these people appear to be very powerful and yet very hidden. So they're you know even the law enforcement people I've talked about, they're they want to get into it, they want to investigate it, they want to catch these people because there's young kids being uh, killed, but they're also worried for their own families, their own selves because it's so deeply hidden what's going on that it is extremely scary. I mean, I'm even kind of a little worried about us talking about it right now. So, All right. Um, yeah, that's that's some spooky stuff. I'm going to look more into it on my own here, uh, but that is that is some really cheese. Well, you know, that, that brings me around to uh, – I, I had Richard Surrett on last week. We were talking about uh, – briefly, we talked about the the celebrity nude scandal that happened last right. week when all the nude right. uh, photos came out. And uh, as I said to him, the, the scariest part for me was this whole – just how they were like, yeah, we think it came from an underground ring of people who trade celebrity photos that they've stolen off their phones. It's like, what is – and I looked more kind of into this sort of underground element of, of, of all that. And it's like once you get into that sort of dark web, deep web stuff and, and sort of the underbelly of, of the Internet, it's – terrifying it's really uh unsettling and, and I, I you know slowly backed away and was like i don't want to know any more about this well it, it is pretty fascinating when you think that we all felt oh well, let's just upload everything we have under the cloud you <laughs> yeah. know like it's just going to be safe up there in the clouds and then you hear about well target home depot you know thousands and thousands of code words and and credit card numbers and everything. It always seems like they always try to blame it on the Russian mafia. It's probably somebody sitting in Minnesota or something. You know, it's just like it's it's going on all the time. And if the NSA isn't doing it, then some underground criminal element is. Uh, and who wants to get close to that? Right, exactly. Yeah, because they, they, you know, they don't want people looking into it, so they, they'll sh- they'll chase off anyone who does. Right, so it's, exactly. It, it's not something you really want to look at. Now, one thing that we've looked at here on the show a few times, uh, I don't think it would fall under cryptozoology. It probably would fall more into this twi- twilight language, uh, mimetic, uh, phantom clown type stuff. That's these black eyed kids. Uh, have you, have you, I'm sure you've heard all about this. Uh, what's your take on that phenomenon? Because that's really emerged pretty big in the last few years. Yeah, well, I want to look into it more because it did come up in Atlanta. The, the two big issues that most people in their 20s seem to be talking about are Slender Man and Black Eyed Kids. Uh, and what is intriguing to some of us looking into that is there's sort of, uh, within the, alien, you know, abductee area, you have some people that are feeling like they're abducted, and then uh, there's this hybridization that's going on between aliens and humans, and being produced out of that are these hybrid alien children who come to your house, and they have dark eyes, and they're asking for help. And if you look at some of the mythology that's going on with the black-eyed children, they sort of mysteriously show up at your house and they want certain things, and if they don't get them, they get very angry. And so people are trying to figure out where's the overlap here between the hybrids, the humans, the aliens, and the black-eyed children. 
Um, so I'm still looking into that. I I don't see any. Um, it's not like uh, some cases where you get you know a really good eyewitness population with dates and incidents and different things like that. It all seems to still be in the uh, up there in the cloud, so to speak, yeah. as far as trying to get details that are factual. Hmm. Uh, and so, and also, I'm I'm trying to look into um, what's the fictional antecedents to the black-eyed kids. I immediately thought of the movie The Damned, uh, where the the eyes weren't exactly black, but it was these. Uh, these all these blonde-haired kids that would do special things with their eyes and get control of people and stuff like that. So, yeah. so it, it seems like there's something going on there. And of course, humans uh, look to power and windows of perception and all of that through through the eyes. But as a recent study just found out, we actually are learning more things through how the eyebrows go up and down. Oh wow! So that's strange. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You see these sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, creatures sort of emerge over there. I remember, like, uh, shadow people were really big like ten years ago. Now nobody's even talking right. about them. So. Right. Exactly. You, you never know what's going to come along next. Uh, but we do see the phantom clowns pop up from now and now and again. Yeah, there might be the the podcasters. We'll, we'll look for those. What's that? The future creature that we're all going to have to watch out for. The podcasters. <laughs> Well, they are proliferating at a dangerous rate, that's for sure. I know, I know. I get about five calls a week from uh, different garage podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> but I only say yes to Tim. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, we've we've shared some adventures over the years, that's for sure. That's true. Um, but, yeah, unfortunately, Monster Mash that we used to be able to do live interviews, that doesn't exist anymore. No, no, the Monster Mash seems to have uh, folded up shop, but hopefully uh, hopefully something new will come along in the future. Uh, I know you do, uh, did you do the, uh, were you involved with the one that was this past weekend up in Maine? Uh, experiencers? Yeah. Well, they actually had their meet and greet at the International Cryptozoology Museum. So, oh, nice. So I, yeah, I got to, I mean, all the VIPs came over, so I got to chat it up with Stan Freeman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people like that, as well as Linda Cortrell. Cortrell. Cortilli? Uh, yeah, Cortilli, mm. yes. I, I met her. And some other people, they were talking about the praying mantises around the edges and the grays and all that stuff. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Do you find it, I guess, how do you find how do you find the time to balance between the two subjects, the Twilight language and the cryptozoology? Because uh, obviously you're you're a big player in both of those fields and, and looking at them intensely all the time. So, like, how do you find the balance? Well, uh, I mean, since this is all I do anymore, I mean, I, I haven't been, uh, you know, teaching at the university or doing research. Uh, I see. I mean, I, as you well know, even in my Mysterious America, I talked about the name game. And the name game has been with me since 19, I think it was 1973 when I did my first article looking at devil's names in 40 and places. Because I noticed that uh, Native Americans, Native Canadians, and colonists, when they came across very spooky spots that would have giant snakes, Bigfoot, mystery zones, and stuff like that, they would give it a name on the landscape of devil this or or even the Hockamock, which is an Algonquin Indian name, uh, word for uh, the devil. So I, I saw a real connection. I've always been a Fortean first, you know, somebody that says 
studies on explain. Hmm. And uh, cryptozoology, of course, because I'm an anthropologist, zoologist, it just becomes second nature to me. Mysteries and animals are part of my life. And then the Twilight language just started getting bigger and bigger because uh, I'm very much interested in how it impacts in all of those fields uh, because you have reports of Bigfoot and you turn around and you're you're walking down a Lafayette Street, you know, so it's it's not something you can ignore. Uh, yeah. If you have your if you don't have your blinders on, I think that's what started really clicking in for me is that even as I was doing the investigations of the Bigfoot reports or the Panther Panther reports, what were the names of the people? And John Keel would often talk about that, how the, the name Reeves kept showing up or, you know, some of the stranger names in, in our culture. It wasn't the Johnsons and the Jones and the Smiths that were having all the reports. It was even down to the certain names of certain eyewitnesses would repeat over and over again, like McDaniel. Uh, you know, McDaniel would see a phantom clown here or, a, you know, a phantom kangaroo over there or, or uh, you know, the Mothman yeah. in, in West Virginia. So, I don't know. It just kind of all merges and reappears and separates quite easily in my mind. Nice, nice. You mentioned the uh, the hotspots. I, I don't know if I should thank you or, or, or uh, chastise you for unleashing the Bridgewater Triangle on, on my world. Because uh, <laughs> being in the being in the general area, it's uh, it's fun to watch the sort of microcosm of of, of uh, battling researchers and turf wars that happen here <laughs> over who's who's the, the the preeminent Bridgewater Triangle uh, expert. It's kind of uh, funny to watch. Yeah, I, I kind of noticed that. I mean, I gave the place a name and pointed it out to people and. And then uh, down through the years, certain people have come forward, and some of them have moved to Florida, and then some of them have moved back, and some of them, you know. And now with the Bridgewater Triangle documentary, mm. uh, you know, various ones in that documentary have come forward and tried to be a little bit more important than the other. And it's it's almost as if it's such a small field, unlike the Bigfoot field or the UFO field, where you kind of have a lot of elbow room to fight and still have enough space in the room. If you're interested in the Bridgewater Triangle, it's, it's such a small subject area, there's going to be a lot of infighting. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty hilarious. You get the folks that are like, well, I camped out in the Hockamock Swamp for three days. And, you know, other like, guys like, yeah, I lived in my car at the random dog track for a week, so right. you, can you top that? <laughs> no, no, I can't. Yeah. And why I wouldn't want to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Quite comfortable sleeping in my bed, thank you. Right. There was once a great American named George Henderson. He met a woodland ape or Sasquatch, and despite its dangerous message of environmentalism, became his friend. But when the time came to do the hard thing and send it back into the forest where it belonged, and birds could perch on its shoulder because it was gentle, George Henderson summoned the strength, and by God, he did it. Did it hurt? You bet it hurt. Like a bastard. But he did it because it was the right thing to do. Another woodland tape. You think about that. What? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Is that Harry and the Hendersons? You've seen it. This is my life, Jack. Well, let's let's sort of use that to segue a little into the uh, cryptozoology realm, because uh, we're sort of halfway through the show now. I guess the biggest thing going on was the psych stuff over the last year. I believe you named him cryptozoologist of the year. Uh, I don't know if it was the most recent year or or what, but uh, he's he's you know he's 
sort of really grabbed the spotlight of, of Bigfoot research. So, and I think rightly so. And so he's, he's probably one of the best people out there to be looking at this. So I guess give me. I'm sure you've done this on a million shows, so you know. You don't have to like really go wild, but sort of just give me your overall first opinion on on how all this shakes out, and uh, you know what it means for trying to get to the bottom of the Bigfoot mystery. Well, I think that if you look at Bigfoot, uh, and we let's take the premise that there are large, hairy primates walking amongst us in the woods, mostly of the Pacific Northwest, they are going to occasionally leave behind fecal material, hair samples, and and footprints. And so obviously the best form of evidence of a large new primate would be a body. Mm. But we don't have bodies. We don't have them yet. The lumber truck or the hunter hasn't killed one. So what Brian Sykes did after the disastrous, uh, there was a DNA project by a woman named uh, Malvo Ketchum. Yep. She, uh, she actually, I think in many ways, this will really come into people's consciousness, I think, in the years to come. She came out and said, I'm going to do a DNA study, and she asked for everybody around the world to send her DNA samples. She got something like 130, 120 DNA samples, mostly of Sasquatch Bigfoot, and then started testing them and and did different things. And she wrote a paper that included things like, uh, you know, 13,000 years ago, a Sasquatch-type creature mated with a, a serial angel-like creature, and that produced the Bigfoot. That, that kind of result being found from DNA is impossible to tell. Uh, the other thing that she did was she couldn't get any scientific journal to publish her paper, so she had a very wealthy individual. This is all allegedly, I should say. Hmm. A very wealthy individual buy a journal for her online, and then she published her paper. Well, it was a disaster. It was just a disaster. You know, She is a, someone that had opened a diagnostic DNA lab a long time ago. She's a veterinarian and all of that. She... It turns out, really, her credibility just started plummeting. And so many people tried to back out of the room that she was in so quickly that they tripped over themselves. Yeah. Uh, along comes Brian Sykes at the same time, a, a little bit later after she started doing what she was doing. And he uh, he had the feeling, he said, look, I'm a genetic specialist in fossil DNA and DNA of hominids. If all of these cryptozoologists and Bigfoot people say that no scientists are interested in us, and he could say, I'm interested, I will do this. He was at Oxford University. His credibility is impeccable. He's had so many scientific papers and, uh, you know, good studies of fossil DNA. And it was, it was a no-brainer for people to want to jump on board. The unfortunate thing, and the reason I brought up uh, Ketchum, is that she actually depleted the samples ah. by asking for them. Everybody had sent in their samples, and so when he came along, there were fewer samples out there. He, it turns out he got about 36 huh. good samples from around the world, but most of them were B, Bigfoot samples. There were 
three Yeti samples that he got in. And the results coming back, uh, the headlines, if you read the media, you would think that his DNA study was a, a slap in the face of cryptozoology. I think it was absolutely a wonderful step forward, uh, the beginning of a real relationship between science, uh, academic science and cryptozoology, uh, the amateurs of cryptozoology. And amateur, of course, all it means is a passionate scientist. It, it talks roots of the word, go back to passion. Most of the scientists during the 17th and 18th century weren't in academia, weren't in museums, they were on the outside and they were amateurs. So so that's the way science starts. Anyway, Sykes comes along, he says, I want your samples, tries them out, he comes back and almost all of the samples from Russia are like American black bear, um, you know, raccoon, things like that. From the United States, all the Bigfoot samples are, you know, cattle, horses, raccoon, bear, human even. In other words, no primates. Right. The three samples that he got um, on Yeti were kind of interesting. One of those samples was from our museum, and we had a good inkling about what we knew one of them was. They were from uh, Hillary's expedition, and Hillary had actually gone over to the Himalayas to debunk the Yeti. So we, I had a sneaking suspicion that what he was passing off as Yeti samples were actually a sarrow, which was a goat antelope. And uh, that's exactly what Sykes found that it was. Uh, the Yeti sample that Hillary and Slick had been talking about was really a sarrow. The other two samples uh, were quite interesting. They turned out to be a... Um, uh, the results were, they were 40 years apart in, in terms of them being collected. They were about 600 miles apart at each end of the Himalaya. And what Sykes found was that they exactly 100% DNA match for a 40,000-year-old jawbone that had been found in Scandinavia, a fossil jawbone of a brown bear that was right on the line of evolving into a polar bear. And so what Sykes said is that the Yeti sample that I found matches a bear, a bear that, and both of the Yeti sa uh, hair samples, by the way, weren't white, and that's a myth that Yeti's white. They were actually brown, and they matched a brown bear evolving into a polar bear uh, hair sample. That's quite exciting, exciting because what he actually proved was that there was a relic population of prehistoric bear that exists in the Himalaya that has not been discovered. Uh, that is as exciting as saying you found, uh, you know, a Neanderthal. And a lot of people haven't really realized that. Instead, they make jokes about Yeti is a bear and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah, that, that that was the troubling part. We we stressed that. Uh, we had a year end show where we talked about the big news of the right, year. Right. We talked about that because it's. I think the, the whole thing was a win for cryptozoology because, as you, you know, tirelessly pointed out, cryptozoology is also the study of out of place animals, and I can't think of a more out of place animal than an ancient uh, bear that shouldn't be hanging around uh, in modern times up in the Himalayas. Right. Well, it wouldn't be out of place there because there, I suppose, there would yeah. be a relic, relic population that actually lives there. 
So it's just it hasn't been discovered. Hmm. And uh, um, Out I mean, of time, Sykes is, maybe, but, but, right, right, right. Sykes is a smart man. He actually has a new book coming out uh, on the Yeti, and he's going on an expedition uh, this fall to the Himalaya to try to find the Yeti, uh, the the bear Yeti. And so I think you know he's going to get some publicity for that. I think we we need to watch out for that publicity because that'll be interesting. Uh, I I can't imagine with the kind of funding that people can get nowadays that he'll be able to go to the Himalayan mountains and find a the bear you know on a weekend or even a <clears throat> six weeks uh, expedition. But I I wish him all the luck in the world and certainly going to bring out uh, to the media to talk to him about his book. So uh, I think his book is going to be very positive because as opposed to a five-second interview that he was able to do when the DNA results came out, he is actually able to stretch his legs and talk about this more in depth. Hmm. And uh, I know he certainly has talked to me a lot. He's talked to a lot of other people quite in depth. And it's not that he's a, a true believer or a cryptozoologist in any former shape, but he's certainly a very open-minded uh, scientist about cryptozoology. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I thought it was good, uh, I guess, what do you think of the whole, uh, I think it was Lana, the, uh, was it Lana, the the alleged, uh, they thought it was a, a cryptid that they captured, but then the DNA testing proves that it was uh, a sub-Saharan African person or something like that? Oh, the Amas, yeah, yeah. They um, That was... In, Interesting because it looked like it was almost uh, as if a sub-Sahara African had been transported to uh, to that part of Siberia and Russia long before they really thought that anybody was up there from Africa. Hmm. So that that was intriguing, uh, but I think it puts to rest a lot of that uh, hybrid Amas snowman talk that uh, the Russians have been trying to. Uh, push across for years and years. Right, right, which is good, because we need to, like, sort of knock down these these things to take up the resources and time of of, uh, of researchers and, and the media and all that. That way we can... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I was just as happy to see that all of those claims for this, uh, from this guy, Justin, who said he went out and killed a baby Yeti, a baby Bigfoot. Oh, that clown. Yeah. Turned out to be a bear, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems with the uh, – I was going to sort of – I guess this is a good jumping off point just to talk about sort of the explosion in popularity of Bigfoot in the last few years. It's, it seems like it's getting bigger and bigger. It's, it, Bigfoot used to be kind sort of a cult thing. You know, people were interested in it, knew about it, followed the whole mystery. But now it's sort of uh, entrenched in the mainstream in a way that uh, I never really expected, and it's pretty surprising. So I'm sure you're, you know, you've been watching it sort of unfold the last decade or so. Yeah, yeah I see it as a kind of um... – different prongs of of uh, interest. I, I see the real crypto-tourism part of it, where people are actually, as opposed to, you know, let's get out in the woods and go enjoy ecology, people are out there going on Bigfoot searching parties. They're, they're you know, five-day weekend Bigfoot hunts. Uh, and, you know, the, there's groups that are sponsoring these and charging $350 and getting people out in the woods and most of them turn out, of course, to be nothing. And in fact, there's been actually rumors that some of the people that are promoting some of this go out in the woods and hoot and holler so that people feel like there's something out there and they're getting their money's worth. But so that's 
that's one phase of it. I think there's then the, the crypto tourism where I'm seeing things like the Mothman Festival or, you know, our museum, which we now, I mean, believe it or not, we've been in existence 11 years. And, uh, you know, there's more of those kinds of things happening in which areas are having kind of crypto, cryptozoological friendly uh, exhibits and museums and festivals that are quite uh, quite interesting and quite uh, stimulating for the local economy. And then I think the thing that we really is having the bigger impact, of course, is Bigfoot on television. Right. Uh, you had In Search Of and programs like that during the 60s and 70s that tried to have some impact, but most of them, of course, were not on Bigfoot. If you look at all of the seasons of In Search Of, I, I did this when I looked at Alan Landsberg's um, obituary that I wrote uh, recently, only about five programs were on Bigfoot. Most of them were on unexplained, like Amelia Earhart or yeah, yeah. disappearances. There were all kinds of different mysteries. But then along comes, uh, you know, Monster Quest and Destination Truth and Finding Bigfoot, uh, the $10 million Bigfoot bounty. And then the atrocious, awful fictional ones like uh, Mountain Monsters and... <laughs> you know, it just keeps getting worse and worse. Uh, even Lost Tapes, which I, I understand they tried to do a good job, but that was a, a fictional sort of found footage program where, you know, every every episode was a fictionalized. We found this tape and this is these monsters. And, and then there was the Scare Tactics program. So all of these programs are definitely, uh, they even if they're about cryptozoology in general, they always go back to Bigfoot. Because my whole theory with Bigfoot and why so many people are interested in it in terms of the whole universe of cryptids is because we're narcissistic. We love monsters that look like us. Yeah, yeah. And so people love Bigfoot first, then they go to Yowie and Yaren and uh, Yeti and all of those wise, uh, and they're all close to you, and you and I. And so Bigfoot's going to be what people keep coming back to. Uh, and there's some really, really awful programs. There's a brand new one on that I won't even say the name of. Hmm. And it's uh, about these people going into caves, and they're looking for, like, the Mapaguari, which is a South American creature, in a cave in California. Or they're looking for a, a bat-like creature that's known from Africa in a cave in the United States. And so... It's it's almost as if the production companies and the writers are getting so lazy they won't even give the travel budgets to send people to the countries where the creatures are really at. Yeah. They're making everything in the United States or in Canada. And that's just laziness in, in terms of cryptozoology. And they're doing other things like let's shoot everything that moves and let's use the person that's the most scared as bait to get this creature to come towards us. <laughs> it's just... Techniques that no scientist, no cryptozoologist would ever use. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've talked in the past about uh, – well, this, actually, that, that, this, is, this thought just popped in my head. I want to follow up on something we talked about a long time ago that uh, I actually subsequently mentioned to other guests and stuff because I found it so intriguing. I wonder if you have any more further thoughts on this. You had suggested in the past that 
maybe uh, sending a woman into the field would be ideal to uh, lure the Bigfoot. Uh, not not in a titillating way, not in a nefarious way, folks. Just some uh, so something about scent and pheromones and that kind of thing. Um, that it might be the best possible tactic. I think you cited the Jane Goodall thing too. And I was just wondering if you've had any further thoughts on that and the possibility that uh, that might be the right direction to go, or if there's any additional layers toward uh, the best possible way to get to the bottom of all this. Well, I, I certainly think it's still the way to go, and I, I think it's it depends on funding. I mean, if you look at the history of primatology, you have Diane Fossey, you have, uh, you know, you have Jane Goodall, and you have that woman whose name I can't pronounce who studies orangutans. And so you have mostly a primary woman researcher going amongst the great apes, studying them and learning the most from them. Uh, you have uh, even, a, even the one episode of Monster Quest, I believe it was, where they had a, a woman... Uh, woman researchers expedition looking for Bigfoot, almost all of the cameramen surrounding them that are off camera were all men. So it completely defeated the purpose. What you find over and over again with the larger primates is that the pheromones and uh, whatever the behaviors that we as men are putting out really scare away the, the groups of these unknown creatures. And so if you put a woman out there for... My motto is uh, one to three women for six months with all of their supplies, women that aren't smoking, women that aren't, uh, you know, putting off, that will agree not to wear perfume, uh, that will not bathe too much. You know, so you have to have a special kind of woman to do yeah, this. like a real naturalist type. Right. I mean, the unfortunate thing is, and I think I mentioned this last time, is that I supported a woman who was, uh, she was an art student. She wanted to do as her sort of final project, almost like performance art, but really hooking up with cryptozoology, to go into the woods for six weeks and video uplink every moment that she was in the woods looking for Bigfoot. And it was mostly the model of not moving around to look at it, but to have a campsite and to have the Bigfoot come to you. And it was in the Pacific Northwest in California, and I got her sponsors, I got her equipment, I got, you know, was sort of the intervener between her professors and her, and she did all of the work, of course, and I'm not taking any of that credit, but I was there to support her for that. And then she goes in the woods, and the first day she's in the woods, when she uplinks, I know that this project is going to fail because... She brought along her dog, and her dog would have scared away any Bigfoot within 50 miles because dogs are not friends of Bigfoot. Yeah. And they, uh, so she, uh, she got back. I didn't talk to her when she was there about it. She got back, and I said, why did you bring her do your dog? And she said, because I was scared to be alone. <laughs> so I said, she should have brought some friends some other female friends instead of a dog. But, yeah. you know, there's still hope. There's still possibility that it'll be done. So we need funding. We need funding for that. Absolutely. That's that's the, uh, the, that's the, that's the drumbeat of all the paranormal, it seems. Now, what about this whole drone thing that came out a while ago? Uh, I think Jeff Meldrum, I don't know if he was a, a part of it or sort of just backing uh, the support of it. Uh, there was a researcher. No, it, it, 
he is the one that's doing it, and okay. he's the one that. And but actually, he just posted on Facebook yesterday that he has a benefactor who has given him uh, a quarter of a million dollars. Wow! And he said he's going to get three drones. That's not exactly the same type. And get this: the name of the drone that he the model that he wanted and he was trying to get funding for was called Aurora. <laughs> but he's not going to use that kind anymore. He said he said he's apparently uh, they're going to retrofit three drones that uh, they have in mind to use. And but uh, you know Jeff Jeff is uh, Jeff is a Grover Krantz of big footery right now, and he's getting a lot of funding, a lot of support, and. Uh, you know he's able to go on his uh, lecture tours and and uh, get around the country quite a bit. And he's still, of course, a professor there. And uh, one of them trying to uh, to uh, well courses that I'm sure will fill up his uh, uh, on Bigfoot and mm. some relic hominids. He also is having a conference next March in Africa. Oh wow! And uh, I'm trying to get. Uh, I've got an actual. A fundraiser on online, and people can find it through my Facebook page. Try to get twelve thousand dollars for myself and my assistant director of the museum to go attend that. It's going to be only a hundred people are attending a conference in Africa on the uh, relic hominid question from around the world. And uh, you know, not to to quote Obama, who said that he got Stonehenge off his bucket list, but. I've not been to Africa yet, and I want to go before I die. So nice. I'm hoping hoping to fundraise enough money that I can make it there. Yeah, folks, help out if you can. That would be awesome. I'd like to know more about that. Um, yeah, even $10 each. Absolutely, yeah. I've got 4,000 friends on Facebook. If I got $10,000 each, I'd, I'd be on my way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Do you think the – well, I guess what, what do you think could be even accomplished with the drone – project i guess obviously if you got a good video it would raise awareness but it it we're we're, we're kind of at a weird apex here or a weird sort of well I, I think there's there's some questions about a drone in my mind one is uh, i mean i guess if it's if it's uh retrofitted with uh infrared thermal imaging maybe we could get something but then uh, there are an awful lot of trees and bigfoot's been as well known to hide in you know in in heavy, heavy forests and caves and stuff. So you might have a drone overhead and not see a thing. Uh, the other thing is, once you see it, can you get to it quick enough to capture it? Right. Uh, um, I don't want to see them shot, but I am a, a proponent of what's called, uh, uh, you know, biotesting. In, in other words, really capturing them, videotaping them, taking blood samples, DNA, and then re-release into a safe sanctuary. Uh, so I think that's the only way to prove them, but uh, I'm not sure. I think thinking about technology as the answer to finding Bigfoot, it's really one of the first questions that the media would always ask me was the explosion of cell phones. So with all these cell phones, uh, won't we get good evidence of Bigfoot now? <laughs> uh, I you know, actually have seen the worst... YouTube videos and cell phone videos of Bigfoot since yeah. the explosion of cell phones. Yeah. The other question is, well, the United States government must know that Bigfoot exists because we have all of these drones and all of these satellites taking pictures on our borders, 
and Bigfoot must be crossing the border all the time to come from Quebec into the United States and such. Well, I've talked to a lot of government people, and I've talked to Border Patrol individuals, and they are not interested in tracking Bigfoot. They're not interested in moose crossing the border. They're not interested in bear crossing the border. They are looking for one thing, human signatures, because they're interested in terrorists. They're interested in people illegally crossing the border. Hmm. Uh, so if they, they said, if we have all of these tapes, digital tapes, you know, whatever tapes they used to be, they said, we're going to, we're going to record over them if we see it. If there's anything that doesn't match human signatures, we don't care. Yeah. And, and so it's not, I don't think it's so much a government conspiracy. I think it's just really uh, a laissez-faire kind of attitude with anything except humans. Exactly. Like if some if some guy who was running the thing uh, took the video to his supervisor, he'd probably get in trouble. The guy would probably, be, right. you know, the, his boss would probably be like, get the hell out of my office with that, man. You're supposed to be tracking ISIS. Not, not well, actually, that something similar happened. Uh, there was a man that came into the museum, uh, and he said that he was ex-military, and he, after he resigned from the military and was living in Maine, he would actually fly a helicopter for uh, searches uh, along the tree lines. You know, if you if you know Maine at all, there's all of this forest. We actually, 95% of the land surface of Maine is covered with trees. So the power lines that run through the forested areas, there's a clear-cut area underneath those forests, those are power lines, and there's forests on either sides. So he said what we would do, Alzheimer's victims would disappear, and we would fly up and down the uh, power lines because underneath the power lines is where the Alzheimer's victims would actually walk. They just would walk and walk and walk. Yeah. And so we would try to recover these missing people. He said, I was in a helicopter. I was flying the helicopter with a, a game warden once, and we were flying along this line looking for a, a person that disappeared. And he said, all of a sudden, from one bank of trees to the other bank, this huge, bounding black panther jumped out and leapt across the opening and then went into the forest. He said the game warden looked to him immediately and said, I cannot tell anybody at work that happened or I'll be fired tomorrow. (laughs) Wow. And and the the guy that was ex-military said that he'd never told that story to anybody because he was afraid people would think he was crazy. Yeah. So. Well, Yeah. It's unfortunate. It's a, it's a weird sort of how there's that mystique surrounding it. But I can understand yeah. the uh, the guy on the helicopter saying that because, like right. I said, I mean, you go to your boss and they're like, get the hell out of here. You're not, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I, I actually had uh, three individuals from the Border Patrol came into the museum. They were on R&R. They were taking a weekend, coming to Portland, getting a little rest from uh, riding along the border between Canada and the United States. They said they did that all the time. He said, and then one guy said, he sort of took me aside. Two others were still listening, but he said, you know, I don't believe in Bigfoot at all. I just, I want you to understand that. I don't believe in Bigfoot. Here it comes. But there was, but there was a winner. We were all, all three of us were on our ATVs, ATVs, you know, off-road vehicles. And he said, all of a sudden, we heard this crashing coming through the forest. 
And he said, I know the signature. I know the audio signature of a moose. I know the audio signature of a human. This was something massively bigger than that. He said, we all stopped our vehicles. We jumped off. We drew our guns. We were prepared to shoot whatever was coming at us. He said, we could hear it crashing towards us. And then all of a sudden, it did a 90 degrees on us and went right off to the side. He said, I don't, I don't believe in Bigfoot, but if Bigfoot exists, that was one of them. Nice. It was very, and as he was saying it, it sort of the hair just stood on it because he was, he was re-experiencing it. You could see it in his eyes. Yeah. He was scared. I mean, he's this big guy. You know, he's one of our Border Patrol guys. He was strong as hell, ex-military, and he was scared to death. So. Yeah, I would be too. That's uh. That's an unsettling experience, especially out in the woods, uh, even if you're with a couple of guys, you know. Right. Once, once, right. once guns get drawn, <laughs> that's a bit yeah. much. Have you uh, – now, we've talked a lot on the show uh, over the last couple of years about uh, the work that David Polides is doing with this missing 411 stuff, uh, which seems to have like a foot in the Twilight language and a foot in the crypto world, uh, possibly. Have you looked at all at, at these, these this rash of missing people in, in national parks and stuff? Oh, well, completely separate from his work, um, because I think there's, I have some uh, questions about his methods and some of his, uh, for instance, he uses a forensic artist that always draws the Bigfoot looking like humans Hmm. um, and really doesn't doesn't go too deeply into the details of the eyewitness and much more, there's a lot of bias there. He also is one of the supporters of the Bigfoot Massacre theory. So, um, you know, the, the Patterson-Gimlin film is actually a record of a massacre of a, a family of Bigfoot, which I don't consider uh, reality at all. I think that's a totally made-up story and really is uh, very undermining to the credibility and to the personalities of many people that have been in the Bigfoot field for a long, long time, like John Green. So anyway, if I can separate out what he does, he, yeah. his books are just collections of everyone that has ever been missing in every forest around the West. And then I understand he has a book on the East and different things like that. Um, I think that the problem, uh, and I really don't know but because you've had programs on it, that there's so many theories. There's theories that there's UFO abductions, that it could be Bigfoot killings, it could be Thunderbirds, uh, that it could be, uh, you know, cult, satanic cults doing sacrifices. Right, right. So the, the problem with any group of missing people is there's so many possible explanations for each individual case to start clumping them together and saying, well, because we've had 150 cases from this section of the woods, it has to be Bigfoot. Uh, I think that's very shaky logic, hmm. uh, and so I, I, you know, I just I, I, I can't think that there's one explanation for all of these missing people. Right. Uh, some some of them are accidents. Some of them are, uh, you know, exposure to the weather, and some of them are human. Hmm. Uh, so. 
Yeah, yeah. To be fair, I don't think he, I don't know, about 99% sure he doesn't say that it's Bigfoot uh, that's doing this sort of stuff. But I think he's right now just sort of collating these cases. But it's interesting. There, there, there are some sort of overlapping. There's, there's the name game at work and that, all that stuff, too. So. Yeah, yeah. I think with a lot of uh, a lot of the missing persons that are human-related as far as people killing them or abducting them, oftentimes the name game seems to really be there. And, and you do get a sense that from some cults, even like the Peter Pan cult, uh, that there's some acknowledgement and interest in certain people's names. Oh, don't bring those guys up again. I'm already okay. scaring me. <laughs> I think with with David, uh, with his early stuff, it definitely was related to Bigfoot. So, uh, hmm. you know, a lot of people get confused. They keep buying the books. and Right, exactly. Extremely extensive. And they forget that he may have gone from that area to another one. Exactly, exactly. Um, now, you, as you probably know, we're really good friends on the show here with Adam Davies, and uh, he's he's done yeoman's work getting after the Orang Pendek. How are you feeling? Uh, any news on on the latest on the Orang Pendek? Any any developments uh, in that realm? Because I feel like that's the one that's gonna, you know, if we if we ever get lucky here in our lifetime with one of these creatures, uh, that might be the one that sort of uh, is the first to break that glass ceiling. Right, right. And in my book, The Field Guide to Bigfoot, I I put him as number one for the best bet for the first discovery. Hmm. So I certainly agree. And I think Adam's work has been great. Uh, the, the unfortunate reality for him and us is that his hair sample turned out to be a sun bear, uh, a Malaysian sun bear, as far as the Brian Sykes project. Yeah. So uh, that was unfortunate because he... But it, it happens, you know, if you're in the jungle and you see footprints of a mystery animal and then look for hair samples around, it doesn't necessarily mean that that hair sample came with that footprint, but you try your best to to link them up. It's just that uh, in the rainforest, you're going to have Malaysian sun better occasionally come through there too. Yeah. Now, aside from the expedition, do we know if, do you know, do we know of any future plans from Sykes? Is he going to do another uh, DNA cull from, from researchers or, or, or what? Uh, yes, that is happening, and it's uh, in negotiations, and I'm helping with that, too. Uh, it's just some more things have to be in place, kind of non-disclosure hmm. yeah. sort of things are in place there. But it looks like Brian is certainly involved in another project. And also, see, the unfortunate thing nowadays, and this is back to the funding, is the number one funder for most cryptozoology nowadays is these documentary film companies and television. Yeah. So, you know, most of those, and Adam is uh, certainly a, a good example of that. Adam was able to uh, go to look for the Rang Pindek again and also the Hamas, but uh, with either history or discovery, uh, flew him into Mongolia for three days. And, you know, you can't hardly do anything but appear in front of the mountains in three days and say, I'm looking for the Amas. So uh, (laughs) I wish wish these companies would know that they need to add a little bit more money and a little bit more time to these places. Right. You see, you know, I mean, I get get the economics behind it, but you see like sci-fi, I'm sure they spent a lot of money on Sharknado 2. If they would just take maybe a portion of that money and, you know, put together this idea about the three women in the woods and, 
you know, they might be they might be able to do something with that. It's very frustrating. Right, but most of the documentary Bigfoot shows don't get back the amount of uh, revenue that Sharknado does on the commercials, so they're not going to do that. Mm. It's just it's the reality of the marketplace. Uh, Sharknado two probably had a bigger budget than a whole season of Monster Quest. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. It's like I, I guess I guess you'd hope you'd wish that they would take the gamble in a sense, where it's like, listen, if you put the money into it that and do an honest effort, then you might get something that will be a huge success because you'll develop something that happens. Rather than it seems like the opposite attitude is going on right now, where they're like you were saying that they're not even doing a very proper job of investigating. If they're sending people to the wrong caves and stuff like that, it's it's right. maddening. But I'm I'm not being dismissive or elitist when I say that most of the executives in television land don't aren't sophisticated enough to know that a guy that comes along and has a fur suit. Uh, isn't a hoaxer, and a lot of them, hook, line, and sinker, thought that uh, this recent guy was the real deal, you know, and uh, and they don't get it. So they, they, I think they've been burned so many times that they're not trusting that any of these programs are going to be any good. Hmm. I mean, I, I, Bigfoot Bounty. Did you watch any of the episodes of that? No, I don't watch any of those shows. They just they, they upset me. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I I do, and I knew some people on those programs, and actually I thought that uh, the way they portrayed the Bigfoot hunters was quite human, and I loved that part of the program. Unfortunately, what happened, and I talked to uh, to uh, Riley, the, the creator of this whole idea, their idea was to put uh, eight teams or 12 teams of people into the woods, into the forest, and to try to come up with DNA. And Todd Desnell was the DNA guy behind that, a very skeptical, straight, narrow, but very open-minded to Bigfoot perhaps existing. So they were going to hook those two, and that had no idea of what eventually occurred. Spike TV got hold of the idea. They wanted better ratings. They wanted more commercials, and they wanted a competition show. So who did they bring in? They brought in some of the producers and directors of Amazing Race, and they turned it into Amazing Race meets Finding Bigfoot, and it ruined, ruined the whole concept. It would have been a very high-standard scientific program with some human interest and some interest in Bigfoot, but uh, by the end of the time that they were broadcasting it, Spike TV had pulled the rug out from under it's so much that they actually were broadcasting two episodes a night just to get rid of it. Oh, they're burning it off. Yeah, right. It was horrible to watch. Well, <coughs> excuse me. You wonder if it's going to – well, you already kind of see it, too. It's the other unfortunate like side effect is that it, it like, uh, it like pollutes the – it pollutes the sort of field in a way where it's like you, you, people – end up becoming stars, quote-unquote, from these shows. You see, like, it happened in the ghost field, and now it's happening in the Bigfoot field, and sort of, like, throws this this, this cloak of uh, reality stars over the field to the point where then it dilutes the funding, it changes, it changes the ecosystem of the research community in a way that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. And and the whole uh, whole idea that 
you kind of like ghost hunters where the people become more important than the subject. Hmm, exactly. That's what. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm exactly agreeing with you. I think the uh, like the the big cryptozoology discovery of the year was the fifth species of tapir. I think we might have talked about this last time. Hmm. But um, tapirs are, are animals that are like small. Uh, you know, they're about the size of a small rhino, and they have the prehensile nose. You might, you know, recognize them. Well, we knew about there being four of them, and they discovered there was a fifth species this year. And then it turned out for over 100 years there's been a taxidermically mounted specimen of this in the American Museum of Natural History that was there because of the person that killed it, not because of the animal. The person that killed it was Teddy Roosevelt. And that's the, that's the cult of personality that is worshipped in America. Uh, you know, the, the person on the show becomes more important than the Bigfoot or the subject. Hmm. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. And then you have these events and it's like, come meet so-and-so from, you know, Bigfoot Festival, you know, Bigfoot whatever show. And it's like people who are doing good research and stuff, they don't get the invites to the events. And like I said, it pollutes the whole uh, ecosystem of the research community. But, you know, we, we, we work with what we're given, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm as shocked as anybody that I'm, quote, unquote, a celebrity in the field because I just started out as a researcher doing field work and then decided to write books, 35, by the way, um, that, uh, that just shared the information. But, like, I go to pick up some Chinese food last night and a guy – you know, from about a car length away, starts yelling at me. Oh, hi, Lauren Corman. Howdy, Lauren Corman. I says, I, who are you? How do you know me? And he says, oh, I recognize you from TV. And it's like, okay. <laughs> and, the, and he said, oh, besides, I used to deliver Domino's pizza to your sons <laughs> in college. So it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> He's a really big fan. Yeah, yeah. So it just it surprises me. It surprises me how how recognizable you can be from TV and how how important TV becomes. When I was at the university and teaching my documentary film course, I actually talked about how people learn more from television today than they do from schools and universities, and it's really changed. Now I'd have to say that it's the internet. People are learning more from the internet than they even are from TV or schools. Hmm. It's just, uh, and to see what's happening to books, nobody uses books that much anymore for uh, research. They just go online and then uh, do their papers from online resources. Thank goodness there's still people that like books, you know, to hold in their hands because I like books that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I never really got into the Kindle thing myself, so it's to see what you mean. Uh, well, we're kind of nearing the end. So, what's what's going on with you uh, before I before I pester you with my with my Red Sox gripes? What's, what's, <laughs> what's well, I'm actually um, I'm revising my Mothman book, and I hope to get that out in the next year. Uh, I'm writing a cryptozoology book, uh, a kind of a massive one, in which I'm really taking a long look at cryptozoology and how it's got distracted by some of the uh, fringe creatures like. Uh, you know, Mothman or Jersey Devil or people thinking that Slenderman is cryptozoology and hmm. it's not. So I'm doing that and trying to return to the roots of cryptozoology and doing that for North Atlantic Books Random House. 
And then for 2017, I'll be writing a book on the Twilight language. So, I'm, and that'll also be a, a major book that really looks at it in a way that nobody has before. So, uh, those are kind of exciting. And then, just uh, still getting out. I'll, I'll be at a, a conference in Minnesota in, in uh, October, and uh, hopefully, we'll be doing some interesting things at the museum, showing movies, or having talks. And so, people should watch the website cryptozoologymuseum.com for news and, and views on that stuff. Hmm. Even though it's, I think you mentioned this, but maybe I'm wrong, but even though it's sort of unrelated, do you get a lot of, uh, is October like the big month for you guys up there because of the Halloween season? Oh, it's not unrelated at all. Okay. Everybody in the world uh, in the media thinks that they should do an article on the Cryptozoology Museum in October because of monsters. Yeah. Mon- monsters and, and cryptids are the same thing to the media. And that's fine. We We'll take any way of recognizing, because we're a serious scientific, historic, and, uh, you know, archives for for all kinds of different things like that. Well, i got to say, you know, uh, I, I, I really consider you a great friend, and I'm just so thrilled uh, by just the amazing, just just how much this museum has taken off. I mean, I, I'm really blown away by the amount of press attention it's received. Did you expect it to ever get this big? Because, I mean, we're talking about national, international publications have talked about this, featured it, written about it. Uh, you know, it's really become really massive uh, since you guys opened it up up there in Portland. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, it, it, I knew that it could be uh, important and significant. I really did not realize that uh, people would appreciate it so quickly. I mean, I uh, for an annual report for our board, I just uh, listed and put together all of the different uh, lists that we've been on and awards, and and then I was getting that together, and all of a sudden, Time Magazine in May of this year names us number seven on the list of the ten weirdest museums in the world, and that was, you know, those kinds of recognition from Time Magazine and the popular culture is extremely important for keeping us alive because during the whole first few years, we were month to month uh, with the rent, you know. Hmm. Whatever people came in, would, that would, money would be turned right around just to make our rent. So, uh, you know, we're kind of getting a little bit above that, so maybe we have two months rent now. <laughs> <in the bank. laughs> but it, it, it helps, and I think that, uh, you know, becoming a 501c3, a charity, and getting some donations in is really making life a little bit easier and we're breathing. And, of course, the more uh, breathing room we have, then the bigger we can make our exhibits. Uh, we can look at bigger spaces someday soon, and, and we can do more things for people uh, off hours because we can hire staff. So, you know, it, it just it multiplies and uh, actually produces much more positive things. Yeah, yeah. And it's cool that the that the city of Portland really seems to have embraced the museum. Uh, I think I told you the story before when I came up to see you and my brother was looking for me trying to find it. He stopped into a place and he's like, "Where's the uh, Where's the Bigfoot museum?" And the and the person like corrected him. They were like, "It's the Cryptozoology Museum." Oh, that's great! Yeah, yeah, so <laughs> <It's> wonderful to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So people really uh, it seems like Portland's really embraced uh, the museum, which is great. Like I said, I'm really thrilled for you. You deserve the success of this whole thing. Uh, you know, it's it's amazing to think that this all kind of grew out of your home. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I uh, just uh, told the newspaper, we got a big front page spread in the the main Sunday Telegram, and the reporter asked me, and I, you know, it's all about personal cabinets of curiosity is where all natural history museums began, and that's certainly 
happened from my home, and it just grew. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. Uh, let me throw in the website plug so I get those before we run out of time here. CryptoZoologyMuseum.com is the website for the International Cryptozoology Museum. CryptoZoo News is where you can get the latest on cryptozoology from Lauren. That's an outstanding website. Actually, I want to ask you one more question about that. And CopycatEffect.blogspot.com is where you can find out more about his research into the Twilight language. Uh, the, the other thing I wanted to mention briefly was... Uh, it's it's I guess it's sort of a weird uh, calling card, but you you write these fantastic obituaries. How did this this sort of uh, this this sort of niche develop for you? Because uh, as morose as it sounds, I, I I hope it doesn't happen. But I'd like you to write my obituary someday because you're so good at it. So how did this how did this become part of your part of your uh, you know your milieu? Well, uh, I, I made a conscious decision. I started noticing that rock stars. Uh, sports figures, criminals, politicians, always got wonderful obituaries written. And many of my closest friends, I mean, you know, Ivan Sanderson, Bernard Hoivelmans, some of my mentors, some of my friends would die. And then I would see nobody, you know, write an obituary about them. So I started doing it. And, you know, I'm a writer and I like to, and I oftentimes can put personal things in there, but I also... I'm a very good researcher, so I tried to find everything I could about the person or get some comments from some of their friends and and so that people can really be remembered. And I've been very proud uh, to say, for instance, when Roy Mackle died, uh, he died, and everybody forgot about it for a month. He died one month, and I didn't hear about it for a month after that. Nobody had written an obituary. And so I wrote an obituary, and then I... I got hold of the Chicago Tribune, Chicago Sun-Times, and say, you might want to know about this guy who died. And because of that, uh, some wonderful tributes have appeared in the mainstream media, including in a magazine, I mean a journal, about microbiology, because uh, all about Mackle. And he would have been totally forgotten. And so I... I'm very happy about that part of me. A lot of people now call me if a relative of theirs has passed away or a good friend, and then I quickly get on it. And hmm. I can usually do an obituary in about an hour and uh, get it out there for everybody to know about and, and remember the person with uh, with gratitude and, and condolences. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I did the year in review, I called you the Dave Meltzer of uh, of cryptozoology. Dave Meltzer is this r- world-renowned uh professional wrestling journalist who writes the best obituaries uh, out there for folks who also get forgotten if they're not uh, remembered by him. So it's it's good stuff. Now, let's Thank talk. You. Thank you, Jim. What's that? Thank you for that. Absolutely. You do outstanding work, man. I like I you know, beyond being friends, I think you're you're top, tops. You're one of the very 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 best. Uh but on the opposite end of that, what's going on with our Red Sox here? What 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 the hell happened this year? <laughs> I, I, I'm aghast at, at this season. Well, they got rid of their good luck charm, you know, Jacoby Ellsbury. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, you know, giving up on him and not giving him as much money as he wanted, and uh, there's there's almost an underlying theme with the Red Sox that once somebody gets to be a superstar, they almost don't like that. They don't like that kind of attention away from the general team. Mm. But I think sometimes it backfires, and I think this this year has been uh, a disaster. It's just really been sad to watch them 
Paul from first to last. Um, and what, why, what are you thinking? I just don't know. I think I was looking at number of at-bats for these guys they brought up, and it, they, they had like hundreds less at-bats than some of the other guys they had brought up previously, like Ellsbury and Pedroia. And it seems like maybe they could have used another year or two in the minors. Oh, right. Maybe they yeah, rushed sure. them up, and, and then that causes sort of a domino effect. Well, they also, I mean, it's the the Bard effect where they get it in their head that somebody who's a you know, great closer should be a starter, and then they ruin them. Hmm. And I think uh, for for Bogarts, he was doing really well at shortstop, and then all of a sudden they want to bring Stephen Drew back, put him at shortstop, and Bogarts to third, he completely collapses. Right. His self-confidence is taken away. Is you know, and everything just he's not going to be back to the same way for a while. Hmm. Um, so I don't know who's making some of the decisions, but uh, I'm I'm for the Baltimore Orioles right now because Ryan Flaherty, who's I think their lucky charm, um, is on that team, and he's from Portland, Maine. So oh, nice! <laughs> I get to root for them because. I mean, I, I'm still for the Red Sox, but I got to be realistic. They're not going to go to the World Series again this year. No, no, they'll, the, the season's pretty much done. It's uh, you can see them putting the pieces together for next year, and it looks good. But who knows what they're you know they they need a lot of work, and uh, I'm not sure if they're willing to put the work in. They seem really gun shy about these big contracts too. You know, I don't blame them. I mean, they got out of that mess luckily, thanks to the Dodgers, but. It seems like now they don't even want to get sign anybody to a big contract. So right. Well, the Oakland A's also that's sort of like uh, Red Sox West. If you look yeah. At the... <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's like one of those things. Like, why can't we get guys like that? So. <laughs> well, you did. You, Red Sox traded them to the Oakland A's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it, it's been a it's, it's well it's really strange you know ten years ago it was like Red Sox Yankees Red Sox Yankees and both teams really seemed on the downswing. Uh, I don't like. I don't even know what to make of of last year's performance in the World Series win. It, it seemed like something that just came out of the ether, you know. That I, I don't know. You talk about twilight language and stuff like that. It seemed like it was like a like a team of destiny from the beginning or something. Yeah, it was very similar. I thought to 2004, where it was a bunch of you know these were the bearded ones and the other ones were cowboy up, and it mm. had that kind of roughness around the edge that made it work for the Red Sox. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I always have high hopes for them going into, you know, the next season, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, uh, it was a very disappointing year. I expected a, a championship hangover, but not this bad. But they also got kind of burnt by the injury bug as well. So, yeah, you know, yeah. it, that happens a lot. Look at the Texas Rangers. I guess they, uh, they've they had more guys on the DL than, like, anybody, and they're in really rough shape. So Yeah, yeah. Well, like they say, there's always next year. Exactly, and it's fun to watch some of these teams bubble up, like uh, the Orioles and the Kansas City Royals. Look like they may do it finally. They may make it back to the playoffs. So, you yeah, know, it's fun good to see those guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we'll uh, we'll see what happens. Well, on that note, let me throw the plugs in once again. CryptoZoologyMuseum.com, CryptoZooNews.com, CopycatEffect.blogspot.com. Lauren Coleman, what would you say, 35 books? Yeah, I mean, that includes me doing some introductions and co-authors and stuff, but I've been connected to 35 books and keeps me off the streets. <laughs> well, on that note, I can't thank you enough, Lauren. I promise I'm going to make it back up to the uh, to the museum probably this fall. 
because I've been doing okay, a lot good. of road trips, and uh, that's definitely a road trip I want to make. So I definitely will try and get back up there. And uh, I really can't thank you enough. You, you really uh, were really easy to get a hold of this time and get things going and, and got us, you know, quick turnover on getting this interview up and running. I really do appreciate it. I know you're incredibly busy, and we're just down there for Dragon Con and and. You know, so I, I can't thank you enough, and I really look forward oh, to yeah. seeing you again in person. We can talk and hang out and stuff. It was a lot of fun, Tim. A lot of fun, and it's always good to be here. And it felt like it was uh, five minutes instead of two hours. Yeah, yeah, the time really flew by. I had a feeling that would be the case, though. And we covered so much stuff. Amazing. Uh, we just bounced all over the place and, and covered so much stuff. So I want to thank you once again. Thanks to the live listeners. Uh, Lauren, I'm just going to throw some plugs in here. You're free to go. And uh, I will talk to you soon, my friend. Thanks a lot. Bye, Jim. Have a good night. Or a good day, I suppose. And I guess I'll wish all the live listeners a good day as well. Thanks to all the folks in the chat room. Baruti, Hillbilly, Vamp Elvis, Bill Burt coming into the chat room. There's another guy in here, but he left. I don't know what his name was. I lost it here. Sorry about that to the uh, mystery character that was in there. And on that note, thanks for listening, folks. Stay tuned in just a moment here for the plugs. And after that, we will call it a day. Let's take a look here. I believe there goes the live audience. So here are the plugs. If you're listening to this program on Blog Talk and you've uh, never heard of us before and you have no idea what this show is, it is Banal of America. You can find out more about us at banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Just punch in Banal of America on Facebook. That'll bring up the page. Feel free to like us. That's where you can find out more about the program and about what guests are coming up in the future. What you just heard was a two-hour program here talking to Lauren Coleman that came at the live listeners live on Blog Talk Radio. That cost me money, folks. It's not free service, and it's also not free to host all these files on the website, although it is free for all the listeners. You can grab over 200 programs from BOA Audio at the website. As I said, all that is free, but we do it via donations from the VOA Audio listeners. How can you help us out? That's simple. Head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That will bring you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the Internet and you want to make a snail mail donation, there's also a P.O. Box address at Banal of America. So check that out and mail us off a donation if you can. As always, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Now, I know things were kind of crazy there in August. You didn't hear from me at all over the course of the month, but so far you've heard a couple of shows here in September Richard Surrett last week, and here today, Lauren Coleman. And this episode here with Lauren Coleman constitutes the first episode of the final four episodes here in Season 8. And I'm happy to report that we have locked in not just the next episode, but hopefully the season finale guest has been set up here. It's always a challenge for me to tie down the season finale guests because we try to get big stars, big names, big researchers, and I think this time around we've done it once again. Can't give you any names, of course, but I'm looking at it now like it looks like it's going to be a pretty much done deal that we got it all set here. 
for the season finale. And we've got the next episode lined up as well. That's coming at you in two weeks. i got a big work week coming up next week, so I can't do a program. But I'm going to have a new show for you guys on Tuesday, September 23rd. Uh, the guest is pretty much locked in, but I want to just get an absolute confirmation before I announce the program. It's going to be a real wild one, folks. A topic I've wanted to cover on the show for a very, very long time. Some scary stuff, some spooky stuff, definitely some controversial stuff, which we will be getting into on September 23rd, so stay tuned for that, folks. And I'll have more information on the season finale guest, hopefully, for you in a few weeks as well. That'll be coming in October, and in between those two shows, another episode, that'll be the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 8. That slot's still open, but i got a couple of guests in mind for that as well. So we're not going anywhere. In fact... We're going to be coming at you with lots and lots more great audio over the next few weeks as we wrap up Season 8. And on that note, we wrap up this edition of the program. Thank you so much to all the folks who tuned in. Thanks to all the folks who are tuning in via MP3 and, again, all the folks in the chat room. Until next time, this is Tim Vinal. Thanking you for listening. Thanking you for once again making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist and signing off.